This is Eric Meyer from the band Dark Fucking Angel, and you are listening to Misery Point Radio. Again, to Misery Point Radio. Appreciate you going against your better judgment and coming back for part two of this epic conversation with Eric Meyer from Dark Angel. I promise you'll only be minimally sorry that you did. But let's be honest, what the hell else do you have going on right now? I mean, besides hand-washing your collection of Misery Point Radio face masks and sanitizing every square foot of your house just so you can contaminate it again in five minutes. Trust me, hanging out with me is way more entertaining and only slightly more sickening whatever so last time around we had just cracked the surface on eric's entry into dark angel the early days of recording and the impact that the addition of gene hoagland had on the direction of the band both musically and lyrically this time around we dive headfirst into the evolution of the band's sound the differences between their four studio albums the link between leaf scars and time does not heal and finally we get some up-to-date info on what's going on currently with the band and the status of the new material. Eric breaks it down as to what we can expect style-wise from the new material, who is involved in the writing process, and possible strategies for introducing this new awesomeness to the world. We also answer some listener questions, go down a rabbit hole about the CD side of the early music scene, and dig into some more random awesomeness. You know, this last hour or so really gets to the heart of the beast that is Dark Angel, and even gives us the answer to what really happened when the band initially called it quits back in the day. So definitely you're going to want to hang out for this. So stick around for one more hour and fill your head with another stimulant-laden dose of Eric Meyer and the L.A. Caffeine Machine. Check it out. You know, when I was first hit with the possibility of getting to talk with you on the show, I went back and listened to all the albums again, chronologically, and it was really cool to hear the progression. We Have Arrived was, of course, super raw. Then Darkness Descends came out, and it was still super raw, but Don's vocals sounded a million times better, and it did kind of have this awesome wall of sound vibe to it. Then we got to leave Scars, and we started seeing a definite shift towards more serious lyrical content and more complex riffing. And then... Time Does Not Heal drops like a fucking bomb with killer production and a really technical musical approach. I think it really brought Dark Angel into a whole new realm sonically and content-wise. Was that a conscious decision to go in that direction, or do you think that was just kind of a natural progression that was bound to happen anyway? Well, you know, to, to talk about the production, because I'm kind of into that stuff, but what was... The Darkness Descends record, like typically, I don't know if people really know this, but like when you, typically when you rec- you have recording experience, so you would get this, but like typically when you're doing a record for your guitars, you know, you do your drums, then you put your rhythm tracks, right? Sure, yeah. You do, you per se double track your rhythms, right? Yeah. Which is you, re- you record one guitar, you put it on the left, you hard pan it on yep. the left, as they say, you pan it, you turn your pan pot all the way to the one side. 
Yep. And then you put your other guitar and you put it on the right channel. You put it all the way on the right side. Yeah, like a stereo mix. Yeah, and that makes – you don't put them up in the middle really so much, but you have your stereo, your double-tracked guitars. Yeah. Right? That's the way we did – that's the way typically most people do their things. Well, you know, it was funny when we did the – like you listen to the Darkness Descends record and you listen to it, it's like, well – why does it sound like it does? Well, Randy Burns said, you're not going to double track them. You're going to quadruple track them. <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah, you're going to play each. You're going to play four times. Play two on one side and two on the other. So that's why that record, it has a cool tone to the guitar, I think. Mm-hmm. Because it was my, it was my rig, and it, I don't know, like, I was I liked that rig. It came out sounding nice, and the way he EQ'd it, and his use of the stuff. But quadruple track the rhythms, you lose all the definition on the picking, yeah. and it kind of turns into this buzz saw of stuff. Because you can't have shit that's going. <laughs> well, you play that once, you play that twice, three times. Four times there is, and and at this point you're not. There's no visual like the Pro Tools. Like everybody gets to look at when you can analyze a waveform and shit. Yeah. Back then, all you're doing is listening, and so it turned into this kind of. It turned into the way that that record came out sounding, and I mean it has its own sonic quality to it, and I think that the mix is good. Um, you know, the balance of it is nice, and it fucking still holds up and um so that was good but then we head into doing like the uh the leaf scars record and you think about this difference in the sonic qualities to it and um what was kind of funny the backstory on that record that was the first record with ron in the band Mm -hmm. and um ron had been with us for a little bit but he hadn't done any major recording experience so it was the first time for him being in a studio. And um, we had this new manager named Paul Shanker. And uh, he managed to get our budget increased, our recording budget increased. And um, and it's just so strange the way things fucking worked out for the band. It's like comedy to think about it now. But it's like, he says, it's just like things just kind of get handed in your lap. In a way, he's like, oh, you're going to go and fucking you're going to go record at this place called Space Station up in Hollywood, Hollywood and Vine Space Station. It's like, I never fucking heard of this place. Hollywood. And, and he was he was this huge guy, man. So he's like, he, he talked like oh, fucking Space Station, Hollywood, Vine, yeah. fucking a rad place. And I was just like, well, I never fucking heard of this place, man. And, I mean, whatever. So it was that Hollywood and Vine, which is right there in the heart of Hollywood. Mike Monarch is going to produce your fucking record. Like Mike Monarch. Oh, the fuck is Mike Monarch? He plays guitar in Steppenwolf. <laughs> Michael Monarch. Guitar player in Steppenwolf. Like, so, well, and, uh, and it's like, well, Michael Monarch wasn't doing any of the bands in our genre at that time. I mean, sure, a guy played guitar in Steppenwolf. Um, it's cool. I mean, he's, Steppenwolf. We're all familiar with Steppenwolf. Sure. You know, band from the 60s or whatever. So, but whatever. So he's going to produce your record. 
It's like, well, and it, it was just, like I said, it was so strange. It's a lot of these things. It's like, it didn't seem like we ever had a choice. They were just fucking, this was the way it was going to happen. And this is what happened. And it's like, okay, so you're going to go record at Space Station. And Michael Monarch's going to do your record. And I remember walking into this studio up in Hollywood, and it had a pretty big live room, and it was upstairs and fucking Hollywood and Vine in this building. And you go in this fucking look at this old, and typically you walk into a studio and you look at a studio, and they have, you know, all the outboard gear and the racks, you know, that's behind the console, typically. Yeah. Well, all the fucking racks were like empty. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it was like, well, this fucking place doesn't have any outboard gear. And I was like, well, but I don't know. We're committed to fucking, this is where we're going to do it at. And, and uh, so there was no, and here's this guy, Michael Monarch. And I mean, whatever, he was a cool guy, but um we're recording this record on this console. I don't remember what kind of console it was, but I remember channels were dying, oh. like left and right channels were dying. So we had to like fucking bounce channels. And, and, it, and if you listen to closely, like on the fucking thing, like I could definitely, I remember there were these weird things going on where some of the vocal was on one channel and then we had to bounce it over to another channel right in the middle of a fucking song. And it was like totally audible that you could hear these differences in there. And, um, and, and we, we get our recording budget increase. So we had, we had a month to, to record this record versus 10 days. Yeah, versus 10 days, so everybody's show, you know, and it was, we did, like, basic, just show up at, you know, show up at 11 o'clock, and you start working at, we developed these really bad work habits instantaneously, because nobody was really cracking a whip on anything, so it's like, you know, you're supposed to start at 11, and everybody shows, <clears throat> excuse me, that was good, <laughs> everybody <laughs> shows up at 1 o'clock, and, um, so you like you say you instantaneously develop these really bad work habits and so that was just sonically the way things were starting to work on that record and um you know i'm sure mike monarch knows what he's doing um i would probably have to say that that kind of music genre is not his forte he fully admitted that it really wasn't his forte uh, towards the end of the record when it was coming time to mix it, he was telling, he told me specifically, he had told me, dude, if you want to get somebody else to mix this record, I am not offended. I, that's kind of commonplace at this point to do things like that, have a different guy mix it, kind of different out or different ears, so to speak. But um, he had said that that was fine by him. He didn't care these kind of communications didn't really get communicated with our manager. I had remember chatting with my manager very specifically and, and, and saying I had serious doubts about the capabilities at the studio. They didn't have any fucking outboard gear. We had to rent gear to bring in anything you wanted. You had to rent it and bring it in. That's extra cost, of yeah. course, right? So extra cost of whatever kind of compressors and EQs and any other things you want, you had to rent it and bring it in. So that's what we were doing. Didn't and you I have had, mic pre's or anything? 
oh, dude, it was, I mean, the pre's that were in the board. Yeah. But there was no, ex- the rack gear was like nothing. It was like there was nothing there. Crazy. And um, so anyway, I remember very specifically my manager was saying, try mixing the record there and see how it works. And if it doesn't seem like it's working, we'll do something else. He had told me that specifically on the phone, me and him talking on the phone. So, okay, I was going at it with that attitude. Okay, we're going to try and do some mixing here and see how it works. And I remember it was like a couple days worth and we were getting some mixes and I swear the shit just, uh, it didn't sound very good, you know, to me at that point. And um, I remember it was like two days in and this our manager, Paul, had like come in. He's like, well, fuck, wasn't it mixed yet? And then I was like, no, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it's going too well here, dude. And he was like, "Well, fuck!" And I was like, "I thought we were gonna go mix it somewhere else." He's like, "Dude, we don't have any more fucking money." <laughs> and I was just like, "Oh my god, really, really? That's the way this has worked out." And uh, that was the way it it worked out. And um, that record ended up. I mean, our the the mastered version of mastering um i don't know if people are familiar with the mastering process and do a little like studio lesson for people who don't really know when you have a your 24 track mix and you you take that you have 24 channels and you do a mix you basically re-record everything onto like a quarter inch or a half inch master tape so that's how you print your mix so basically in those days of multi-track tape recording, you end up with your master of quarter inch or half inch tape. If you're being more exotic, you have your half inch tape and you take this tape to the mastering lab because at that point you're making records. Yeah. You know, and it's the process of doing it. And when you take it to a, um, at this point, I mean, I'm sure there probably still are, but now it's so digital now, but, um, yeah, different mastering labs, and what the guy would do, the mastering engineer, he puts your tape up on a thing and he listens to it through his monitors. And he's like, okay, maybe it's got too much low end or something. That's basically what it is. It's like, you've got too much 20 Hertz or something. Your record's going to sound fucking muddy. And he's got a big, nice EQ system and he fucking adjusts the EQ. So he will make your record sound. Uh, he'll add some, boost up the level or something you know make all your songs the same output level and what he ended up doing with the leave scars was trimming out a lot of this low-end fucking ugly rumble that it had because we uh recorded it the way we did yeah uh, on this console and um but yeah the uh that record came out sounding really really pretty ugly and um you know, to listen to it at this point in my career, I fucking don't really want to listen to it. Um, <laughs> the, that, the energy of the songs was good. The the songs themselves were good. I think I did some fun solos on there, too. <laughs> but uh, sonically, the record... Um, didn't do it for was, you. Nah, definitely didn't do it. It was quite a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. Obviously. And um, it... You know, a Dark Angel kind of fell into one of those traps and 
having a, a few different records that sonically they were kind of all over the map. They were through the years and stuff like that. And I mean, if it wasn't from Metallica falling in those same pitfalls, you know, you listen to different Metallica records in the early days and they're all so different. Sure. And, um, you know, that's kind of, I think, a saving grace because, I mean, a lot of bands, you know, they come out and they got beautiful sounding first records and every other record just sounds fucking awesome, you know, like a machine head or something comes to mind or Slipknot or whatever. And, you know, these bands, that, I mean, they're, they're a lot later. You know what I'm saying? I and do. So, yeah, that's kind of the way that worked out. And that was the time record. I mean, the... Uh, the Leave Scars record, that was why that one sounded the way it did. Um, and then after that, you know, the next record that we did was the Time Is Not Heal record. And that was, again, we got our recording budget bumped up at that point. We had kind of got the green light to work with other producers, you know. And um, Terry Dates uh, name was a guy, the name that got thrown into the hat at that point. He had worked with Overkill. He did that Years of Decay record. Great He'd album. Done, that was our genre. And uh, he did stuff with Soundgarden and this and that, you know. And um, But when we, he had, we had toured with Overkill, I think at that point, we, I think the Years of Decay might have been out or something at that point. And that was a good sounding record. Obviously, I think he'd worked with Prong, but the big one that we had got that was pretty funny at the time, he had just done Cowboys from Hell. And we had gotten an advance cassette of, because you get like a little sampler from your producer guy who mails you some tapes to check out. And Cowboys from Hell on the advance promo. Terry Date record. And I remember listening to the Cowboys from Hell going, damn, this is pretty. And I, you'd kind of heard of Pantera a little bit because they had done like four records or something. Right. But obviously those records were kind of in a different league. Very glammy. <laughs> different singer. Yeah. yeah. Those guys were a bunch of spandex wearing <laughs> poofy hair motherfuckers. You know, they were, it wasn't, it was definitely in a different thing but sure. so we got the cowboys record and listened to that and uh i was just i was remembered i was really impressed with it and i really kind of thought that that maybe it would take off huge for pantera you didn't know because the record wasn't even out yet but i mean just hearing it at, at that infantile stage was like wow it, it was kind of fun to you know to reflect back and be like wow man maybe this shit will blow up really big i don't know because it's kind of melodic but it's kind of hard and but whatever so we got the thing with terry date and we ended up working with him and we recorded at this uh, record uh a studio in costa mesa called front page recorders which they had hadn't done anything that i was familiar with i don't even know if they're still there but it was a nice really nice studio and and terry date was a guy from your area actually seattle guy yeah and uh, so he came down and and um you know i mean working with him he was fucking kind of a, a big name a minor big name guy you know at that point he was a really cool cat to work with and and um he obviously knew how to make get good sounds 
And uh, that's how the time record came out. And it's probably our best sounding record sonically. Yeah, of course. I think it sounds amazing. And one of the things that I like about it is the fact that you can really, there's a lot of headroom in that album. You can hear every instrument extremely clearly. I've always liked your guys' bass mixes, actually. I always felt like you didn't bury the bass, which was kind of a thing to do back in the day. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that was kind of a conscious thing also that we wanted to make sure we had more of a powerful bottom end. Uh, that was Mike's second record, and Mike is a really good bass player, and he plays with a pick, and he's very solid and a very uh, capable guy. And he, you know, he made his debut with us on the Leaf Scars record, but he's a great bass player, and that was a bit of a, a conscious decision that we made that we didn't want to have bass buried, that we wanted to have the records have fucking power in them, and that's going to be your low end, you know. So that was definitely a uh, conscious decision to make sure that that happened for us. So we also saw quite a bit of, I guess I would say a little. Uh, development on the precision side of things i mean you know you you open up with the opening song on on you know time does not heal and you got this really cool kind of acoustic thing and then and then it kicks in and then you've got lots of layering which i really like so there's there's some different sonic experimentation going on with actually the structure um which i also thought was super fucking badass all right on thank you very much yeah i'd have to credit my uh that the sound for that intro was that was actually something that terry date had decided that he wanted to do actually it's funny that you mentioned that because it it sounds like a 12 string right yeah but actually terry's idea was what we're gonna do we're gonna take like a 12 string guitar but we're gonna string it with six strings and then we're gonna record it separately so it was actually recorded uh separately like with our things and that's why it sounds like that and kind of has that that was just like a, a terry date thing that he wanted to do and honestly, I don't really remember if we had the feedbacks and that layering and that intro, if that was something that was done. Because that was that was a song that was written by Brett. And um, I don't remember if he had it pre-construed in his head to do it like that, or if that was like another Terry Date thing that he wanted to have it fade in and have those feedbacks come in and all that shit. I think that might have been kind of a Terry Date thing as well with the different layers of the feedback kind of harmonizing and coming in. That was something that was pretty sweet. And um, so, yeah, that was pretty fancy right there. Yeah. And, and you know, Payne's Invention Madness had kind of a similar effect where you had like this really chunky rhythm and then kind of a nice layered feedbacky guitar over the top, which I thought was a. Uh, also, yes. super that's probably my favorite track off that record. If we're going to oh, kind of throw right favorites on. just because of how it kind of really comes in and starts out slow, but getting into song structure, I think, especially in regards to that album, you know, I noticed that obviously they take on a lot longer songs and I wasn't sure if they had anything to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of those lyrics written by Gene, they were really stories, right? This is basically For sure. time does not heal. In my opinion, was always kind of a concept album that didn't really get credited as a concept album. But all the songs kind of have this psychological kind of, you know, sure. backstory to them. And in fact, I always yeah. often wondered if, you know, where Leave Scars kind of started taking that on, maybe that there was kind of a, it started out one way and then the story started kind of working in later on and they almost seem like they're related in some way. And even the album covers kind of have a similar vibe to it with the color and then the girl and like the weird blurred background. Exactly. They really exactly. almost seem like two parts of the same album. Like I really want to go here, 
but I got this timeline, but next time around, I'm going to pick it back up and then we're going to go full balls out on that. Am I on the right track there? Well, actually with some, with some aspects of it, with a lot of aspects of it. Yeah. Like with the cover art, the uh, leave scars was, has like a young girl sitting on her bed. Right. And, um, the concept of that was kind of like this, unfortunately, it's like this pedophilia kind of thing. For sure. And there was there was actually supposed to be, and there kind of is, but it's not as prominent as you would want. There's supposed to be like a shadow of a figure coming into the oh, casting over her. Right. And I believe there kind of is. I'd have to look at it, but it's not as prominent as um, it's not as prominent as we wanted it to be. But it's kind of just the way it came out was the way it came out. Sure. Um, but that was the thing. And then for the time record, the girl is actually supposed to be, that's supposed to be the same girl growing up more. That's kind of what I was thinking. So, and it was like, the, and it was like the girl was stuck in an alley now and you have all the fucking hoodlum. The guys were supposed to look like a bunch of hoodlums, um, which to some extent they do, but to some extent they kind of don't. And that was just another thing that kind of came out the way it came out. But that was kind of part of the plan and um like with the songs the the kind of the direction the band kind of morphed in after a while you know you had jim durkin was was kind of the predominant songwriter in the in the early days of the band and then i got in the band and he and i crafted some songs together mm-hmm. and then when gene got in the band gene's guitar player also so like on the darkness stuff and then having gene on board like we have arrived stuff you know, Don Doty was writing the lyrics. So that's kind of, you had that phase of the band, but then you got Gene in the band and Gene fucking is a very articulate guy. And it's like, wow, he could write the fucking lyrics. So that's why all of a sudden the darkness stuff, it took on these huge, long lyrical things because Gene, Gene was writing all the lyrics. And then obviously his, his storytelling lyrics, lyrics, lyrical capabilities progressed more you know, on the lead scars and he kind of took it to another level. And so with the lyrics and now he's got a better singer to work with, with Ron. So now all of a sudden Gene has like, if you, you know, a lyricist to have a great singer is a fucking awesome thing. So now Gene has this awesome singer to work with. And now see, uh, Gene is working now with Jim Dirk and writing the songs. And I kind of ended up taking a back seat to all that because those guys just kind of buddied up really good. And, and so I was kind of cool with that, but those guys kind of tended to buddy up and write all the music. So that was kind of just the direction that it went with kind of the more involved stuff. And then Jim left the band and then we, we did some touring with that. So enter Brett Erickson, the guy from Viking. He was in Viking. Yeah. Yes. So Gene had worked with, <clears throat> Gene had worked with Brett before we had played shows with Brett. And so, now, Brett Erickson had come in, and Brett Erickson and Gene got together, and, and some of those songs were solely Brett's composition, which is kind of the why they sounded a little bit different for Dark Angel. Like, for say, Act of Contrition sounds a little bit different for Dark Angel. Brett had written that song. That's all his music. That kind of came in beforehand. So, and Jim Durkin isn't in the songwriting anymore at that point. So it's, it's mostly Hoagland's songwriting on a lot of those songs like that. Um, I think Payne's Invention was a, was a Brett guitar song. 
But then you have like the other songs, uh, Ancient Inherited Shame and those things. Those are Hoagland's guitar playing on that. Those are his songs that he wrote. So that kind of takes that direction. <clears throat> and when you talk in terms of like the the way the songs sound and like the the storytelling, yeah, it is it is like a fucking five verse story that he has written out. And, and it's kind of funny. I had I had remember talking to him at one point when we were like approaching the, the demos from the songs. And, and I was like, man, we should try to shorten this shit up a little bit. Bro. <laughs> and he's like, oh, can't, can't, man. It's all written out. It's all story, man. You can't just cut the story out. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, okay. Well, so, and that's kind of the way that went at that particular time. And I'd have to say for the new direction that the stuff is going, you know, Jim Durkin and I have been getting together, working on new stuff, which is, I know what everybody wants to hear about. Of course, sure. right? So, and, and honestly, the, the direction that we are thinking seems to be the most popular era of the band is kind of like the darkness descends stuff. And, so I think we're in as a guitar player wise, as a guy playing in the fucking band, you know, you play guitar yourself, like playing the eight, nine minute song. It's a bitch, you know, <laughs> playing, I mean, it, honestly, playing it live is one thing, but doing it in the fucking studio. Um, well, now the way shit can be now, <laughs> the way stuff can be parted, you know, with the pro tools, I mean, yeah. you can just piece you could piecemeal the thing together, which is just the way shit gets done nowadays. But um, to play the shit live and stuff, I mean, we kind of we kind of found all that stuff out when we were touring on the Time Record and all that. That having these huge songs, um, if you have a short support slot set, that means you have like five songs to yeah. play if they're really long. And um, so I'm thinking. And the way Jim and I have been writing some some of our new songs, they're they're shorter songs, and uh, I'm hope I'm hoping people are cool with that because that's just kind of what we're doing at this point. Uh, it's real premature in the process still, but we kind of believe that that's the direction that uh, you know people want to hear. Yeah. So you're probably you're not going to hear time does not heal part three you're going <laughs> to heal you're going to hear darkness descends part two so if that's good um great if it's not well yeah you know, i love that in fact i had a, a couple of a uh, couple <laughs> listeners uh that are our fans that wanted me to make sure that i asked you about that uh kevin adamson and charles sepulveda they both said hey you know let's check on the status of the material like you said we all kind of want to know that, and that's something you guys are probably prepared to answer every day for the rest of your lives until this comes out. But uh, yeah, you know. man. I mean, unfortunately, with the the status that the band is in, uh, we're not signed on a label. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, we don't have a record. There's no record label right now at this time. So, um, so there's no timeline. You yeah. know, and uh, and unfortunately, some of the you know, not everybody lives in the same backyard uh definitely makes it harder too and you know we're kind of of the old you know obviously new school mentality of bouncing shit around well we're kind of a bunch of older guys that don't necessarily have all that so it's going a little bit slower but you know we're working on it man it's about what i can say with that 
And Gene's busy, obviously, he plays. Gene's busy motherfucker. He plays in so, 400 bands, so. Pretty you know. much. <laughs> you know, yeah, Testament just put out their new thing, so whenever their whole touring cycle got interrupted, but, uh, you know, that's yeah. whatever it is, what it is. Yeah, and, you know, they, uh, I assume, uh, as Kevin is wondering if there's, uh, you know, it's still early in the stage, but, you know, the album comes out, then sure, there's probably some kind of a, a tour that you guys would like to do or plan on doing a tour to support it if it gets to that point. I would like, I mean, I would like to hope so. I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of early, it, you know, like you say, it's kind of early in the game. And uh, obviously people are at different points in their lives where the other guys, you know, they're, I mean, they're working all the time and they got house payments and shit like that. And a lot of that stuff doesn't get accomplished with playing in a band. So it kind of makes it, that's, that's why you haven't seen the dark angel tours at this point. I mean, last, last year we went to Australia, did our first mini tour of a first, uh, four shows in a row that we've done consecutively in, uh, years. And, um, but that was really bitching to do. So, <laughs> I mean, hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll get to do more stuff like that. Yeah. You know, definitely. Charles had yeah. mentioned that he had tickets in Vancouver to go see you guys when you were supposed to do the uh, play that darkness descends in its entirety. Yeah. And apparently it had gotten canceled a month before. And so yeah. he was like, Oh, I was so fucking close back in 2016, yeah. you know? So we were, we were excited about that. I think Ron had a problem. Ron, um, was unfortunately having some, some heart issues at that point yeah. that, uh, were, were, were related to sleep apnea that, um, took him quite a while to crack to figure that what the fuck was going on there. Sure. But that was going on at that point. And, uh, we had to pull out of that show, unfortunately, cause that was, we were real, all really looking forward to doing that, but, um, uh, didn't work out, unfortunately. Yeah. That's them's the break sometimes. So, yeah, you know, much. you guys had, uh, kind of called it quits, gotten back together kind of temporarily, took another break, come back, you know, around 2014 is when you guys kind of said, hey, listen, officially there's kind of new shit in the works. What was the initial reason for why you guys stopped back in, you know, 92, 93, whatever it was? At that point, the Time Does Not Heal record had just came out and um, it had gotten some really cool, like a, got some great reviews, great press. Um, so that was really good. Um, we had a, a big tour booked in the U S if I remember, yeah, we had a big tour booked in the U S and it was going to be like our biggest undertaking at that point. Uh, I believe bolt thrower was going to support. Oh, and that was going to be real fun. Because I think it was like their first time over, if I remember right. But um, typically, at those when those things are going on, you request tour support from your record label to uh, accomplish a tour. And um, I remember we had a tour support budget, and um, it was X amount of dollars. And Combat said, "You need to cut your budget down. You need to cut your budget down. You need to cut your budget down." Fuck. And then they. And then they said, uh, your budget's been cut to nothing. We're not giving you any tour budget. So here it was, the basically the 
the eve of, you know, not the eve, but the record fucking just came out. We were just going to get started touring on it and it got great press and uh, basically combat pulled the plug on our tour. So the tour that we had booked, it was canceled. So, um, you know, it was kind of, you know, obviously heartbreak city. And now all of a sudden we were at odds with our record label now at this point, because, it was like it was like a big fuck you from combat and i believe their their attitude was they had spent more money than they had planned on it with terry date or something i could be mistaken about that but their attitude was we've allotted x amount of dollars for dark angel and our x amount of dollars has been reached and we're not going to put any more money with dark angel so we don't care whatever oh. and so then at, then at that point it was, um, we wanted to get off the label, I believe, if I remember right. And um, that ended up dragging month after month. And it drug out. And then, um, and then I believe it was like 90, you know, it was 92-ish. And now you had the grunge revolution hit. Oh, trust and, me, uh, I'm right there in the middle of it, so I know all about it. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, so you had the record label thing. It took forever to get off that record label. Then when we were off it, the grunge thing hit. So now we were uh, a bunch of guys with no fucking record label now. And uh, basically nobody even gave a fuck about that genre of metal anymore. And... Uh, there was a promoter in Europe that had wanted to work with the band. Can't quite Met, Metali C promotions. If I uh, Johan, this guy Johan has done tons of fucking European tours. And uh, he wanted to take us on tour really bad for a long time. And uh, so we ended up doing a European tour with him, headlining club tour, which was awesome. And it ended up being the last tour that we did. And um, before that, Brett Erickson had decided he didn't want to be in the band anymore. So we replaced him with this guy, Chris McCarthy, who had played in a band called Silent Scream, which was a band that Gene was friends with. So we got this new guitar player. So we were a band that was label-less. And we did this one European tour. And then we were kind of started working on some new stuff and... I don't know. I don't really think people were all that happy with anything and there was no record label. And then, you know. So it just kind of, it just kind of just petered out of its own accord. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think Ron said all of a sudden he fucking, I don't know. He wasn't happy with shit anymore. And, you know, yeah. I don't know if he was seeing eye to eye with the other guitar player. Well, so Whatever. So then that just kind of put a fork in it at that point. But like I said, at that point, at time, um, all of metal stuff was really having a tough time at that point. Lots of bands kind of, you know, because the grunge thing took over. And that was why, you know, everybody who was in in that genre, you know, that it hit big and our style of music was totally uh, 
people didn't give a fuck about it anymore. Yeah, so, even local yeah. metal bands here like Sanctuary, you know, they kind of fell victim to that. And then that ended up morphing into Nevermore, you know, which was fucking sure. absolutely amazing. But that whole... That whole scene, even here, metal in Seattle in general, fucking struggled in the you know the early to mid '90s just because of that that entire that entire yeah. movement. I mean, I don't know. I mean, bands that were in the next level. I mean, you know, your Panteras were kind of obviously in the next level, and um, I mean, I don't know really what bands were kind of surviving at that point in the in the '90s. I don't think Machine Head was born yet, really. I, I I don't really know. I, you know, you got to think like your Anthraxes, maybe your Testaments, except Exoduses and Overkills. Maybe I don't know really what those guys were doing. I think everybody was just kind of struggling at that point. And you know, and and honestly, so Dark Angel broke up, and, and hearing like Alice in Chains and stuff from for me, it was it was almost kind of refreshing. You know, it was kind of a different thing going on, and you know, that was. I, I started playing with some different guys and, you know, I mean, whatever. It kind of did its own thing. Ron and I did a band after Dark Angel called Hunger, which was, we were kind of trying to take it in a little bit of a different direction, you know, doing drop D tuning and yeah. playing metal-ish stuff and kind of chilling on the guitar solo kind of thing and kind of trying to keep it more, uh, mod- more modern with what was going on at the time. Sure. So we kind of did that direction a little bit. Um, you know, unfortunately, there, the the label interest was kind of nil. Unfortunately, people just didn't really give a fuck about metal, and it was still too metal for anybody. So Hunger never went to anywhere beyond the demo that we did. And, uh, you know, that was about where we left off, I think, while we folded up yeah. well, shop at that speaking of demos you know the rumor is that you guys had been doing some demos and that uh they were basically being a atrocity exhibition right was kind of what the name was being thrown out as is that correct that is true that was atrocity exhibition was gonna be the next that was the plan for the next record beyond the time record that was music basically that gene was writing uh the new songs, you know, for the post time does not heal stuff. And, uh, those were things that he had, Gene had done. And, you know, I think he had whatever, however many songs on there or something. Yeah. um, Coincidentally ended up being the name of an Exodus record. (laughs) Very, very coincidentally, man. I I don't really know how that really came to be. I don't recall (laughs) where, atrocity exhibition came from from gene and well, there's and, a sci-fi uh, writer named uh, jg ballard who did like a bunch of short stories and he was kind of like a pulp author um mm, and so i mean yeah. that was the title i believe of one of his stories so i mean it had been out there but you know as far as how it relates to how it got from that to you to them moon cosmic fucking mumbo jumbo who knows dude. right yeah that, that i don't know and um uh, i do i do definitely remember that you know the exodus stuff kind of came out later and how that came to be i don't know with their trust in the exhibitions part a and b and yeah i yeah. don't remember all that well, crazy. I was curious then, kind of bringing it back to the modern, because you know we'd started talking about you guys, you know, doing some new material, and I was curious if any of the stuff that you're doing now is at all being 
kind of resurrected from any of that stuff back in the day, or are you starting all the way from scratch? I believe we're going to start all the way from scratch. Cool. Honestly. Um, those, if I remember right, that music, that was music that Gene had wrote. And I, and I know that Gene has like songs in, that he has written now from, from, you know, from what I understand. And, um, but you know, that's, that's really not the plan to try to resurrect that stuff and, and move forward with that. You know, we're kind of working on Jim and I have been working on new stuff and it's, you know, that music was kind of more of you, if you can imagine time does not heal part two, Yeah, that, that was, because Gene wrote that music. I mean, that was the direction that Gene was going. And so those songs were more seven minute songs with 25 riffs in them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, that is for what it is. I mean, that stuff is cool. I just honestly don't really think it's where my head is at anymore. Sure. Honestly, so is uh, Ron working on lyrics or doing any kind of uh, stuff like that? Really, yeah, he says he has written a bunch of stuff, you know, and and honestly, we haven't really gotten together to uh, to work it all out. He hasn't like laid down any vocals on any demos yet. So Ron, really... you live forty minutes away from me, dude. You can just come to my house and I'll audit that right? shit for you. <laughs> that would be awesome. Well, I'm glad we have that connection now because he doesn't really have that um, those kind of capabilities. I know. So that is awesome that we have this now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, when all this craziness is over, fuck, even before it's over, I don't care, you know. I know, right? I don't really, <laughs> think, there's not, I don't really think there's that much germs going around, honestly, right? I'm sure you're fine, Ron. <laughs> you know what was odd, you know, talking about all that shit, you know, I'm sure you heard, like, you know, that Testament European tour. Yeah, yeah. That, that was going on. Sure. That got Will sick. Yeah. And, and those other guys, yeah, and it and it was so kind of trippy because I thought about them when they were out there doing that, and you know that Dark Angel shares techs with Testament. You know, Gene's drum tech works for for Dark Angel. It's got for Jeff sure, Bruce yeah, and the guitar tech also, um, Kevin Kevin Young. He does. He did our stuff in Australia, and then he was working for Gary Holt. So he was doing their stuff, and I, would, you know, like to hope, just depending on schedules, that um, he would be doing our shit in the future. But um, what ended up happening, you know, they were doing that tour, and then, you know, they ended up canceling like the last, very last show, and they canceled their Italy show because Italy was really hot at that point, and. Uh, you know, and then I talked with Gene after that tour when he came home and, you know, there wasn't that much of a buzz about the coronavirus at that point. And, um, he was just like, well, you know, it's more of a, you know, if you're 80 years old, you got something to worry about. But there just wasn't that much of a buzz about it in Europe, I guess, yeah. that he was hearing about at that time because it didn't blow up to that magnitude. And then, you know, I had read that Will had said that a few of the Death Angel guys in that whole camp were actually sick when we when they were there. Yeah. So 
that was going on. And then my guitar tech, Kevin, he got, he came down with it when he was home. Yeah. So all of a sudden there were some people that, and, my, and, and the contrary thing about it, Gene didn't get it. And Jeff Bruce didn't get it. His tech, they yeah. didn't get it. So some of these, you know, and then Chuck Billy Chuck got Chuck came it. down with it, yeah. Steve DiGiorgio got it too. Yeah. So, um, you know, and obviously I think Will fared the worst with it than anybody we heard of being in a coma. Yeah, crazy shit, and dude. Fucking horrible, man. And um, so amazing that he came out okay and everything. I mean, that's just uh, – and my friend Kevin, you know, when when I asked him if he was okay and then he told me I'm sick, and I was just like, oh, my God. But his, his bout with the illness was just being at home and uh, riding it out at home. Yeah. He did. And so – he that was his extent of the injury of the illness and um so it affects different people differently and uh you know such as life yeah man but myself uh, i believe you said that you have asthma too Right. Yeah, yeah, I have a pretty nasty respiratory stuff, uh, you know, so things things in the world, I mean, I, I kind of look at it like there's already shit out to get me, right? But uh, Yeah, I you mean, know. I've got, yeah, I've got asthma too, so it's like myself and you, we're like on the fucking scary list for the COVID, <laughs> right? I mean, like, fuck, it, it's like an asthmatic. If we get it, we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. We're it's fucked, uh, man, me and you. Life we, is a struggle, brother. <laughs> and and like my girl Donna, she's diabetic and she's like had she's missing a lot of organs. So she is like on the high risk portion as well. So her, her and I, you know, we're really fucking cowering from the thing. And, yeah. But um so yeah, so there's that, but hopefully it's all better now. Yeah. Well, uh Just, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to some semblance of normal at, at some stage of the game. But, you know, everybody's got to do what they got to do. You know, if, if you're in a high yeah. risk thing, you know, play it smart, you know, stay safe. Ain't nothing, nothing wrong with that. And, you know, if you're not, then just, you know, do your best to be respectful of others. And, you know, For at sure. some point, everything will get back to normal. It might take a while, but I, I think that we're, I think we're heading in the right direction there. So, uh, speaking of getting back to normal though, you know, uh, before we start winding down, I did want to ask you because the new norm, I, I, I fucking hate that, but I mean, that's obviously the phrase that keeps getting tossed out there. Um, the new norm is that bands uh, that are kind of in mid cycle or working on projects are now kind of releasing singles kind of as they're finished and then kind of releasing albums after the fact. Uh, how do you stand on that? Are you kind of thinking the same way for what you're doing now or are you just going to do it all and then wait and just fucking here's a new album and you haven't heard any of it? You know, honestly, in, in my personal opinion, I think it's a fucking great idea as to whether or not that will happen for us remains to be seen. I'm pro for that, but we'll see if that happens. We'll see if that, I know my manager seems to talk, oh, you know, we've got to do album. Our genre is album uh, focused. I don't know, man. Well, it was. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. We shall uh, see. So, uh, well, hey, are you ready for a couple of listener questions? Sure. Awesome. All right. From 
Craig and Lum from Heathen. Oh, right on, man. Yeah, awesome. Well, Cragen, a huge, huge fan of Dark Angel going back in the day, um, wants to know, what is the origin of the L.A. caffeine machine? Well, we're from L.A., and the caffeine machine, we... You've seen the Viverin caffeine pills? <laughs> Viverin? I haven't even heard that in forever. <laughs> yeah, Viverin caffeine pills. Uh, that was kind of where that came from, and I mean, honest. So I know Gene was a proponent of taking those pills. I had taken some of the. We would take some of those pills, you know, the LA caffeine machine. And that's just kind of I think Gene came up with that badge, uh, the LA caffeine machine. That's kind of where it came from. Was from the caffeine pills, and unfortunately, you know, it was methamphetamine based. Honestly, it was kind of <laughs> took its had its dirty little mitts into everything at that point for a while. And everybody had their dirty little fingers in that shit. And unfortunately we all did too. So, you know, speed metal was kind of what it was, but you know, Exodus is no stranger to that. And you know, <laughs> everybody, everybody, you know, talk about drugs or something in that genre, man. It's, uh, it was so kind of strange to me how, I ended up being a dabbler in methamphetamine and kind of everybody was, I think almost in that, in the genre of that time, Coke or methamphetamine that a lot of people were, everybody, you know, it was eighties. Right. <laughs> and that was what happened then. And it just kind of amazed me at how, you know, we were in LA and we would do it. And we kind of keep it on the down low and go up to San Francisco. Fuck, everybody was doing it over there. <laughs> and everybody was wide out in the open about doing it over there. It's kind of just like, wow, it's kind of weird, man. And, and then, like, you go travel on tour, man, and you go to Texas and you go to Florida. Man, it's just kind of weird how this shit was just everywhere, man. Yeah. And it... I mean, maybe it was just kind of the genre of the music and, you know, metal dudes and it's just kind of drugs and musicians and kind of that shit that kind of go hand in hand. And Mr. Hoagland was a sober guy and he never dabbled in that shit. And my props to him for Hoagland never dabbling in that stuff, which is awesome. Uh, the rest of the guys can't say the same thing, but um, it was great for him and and that's just kind of the way things went. And uh, fortunately, everybody is on the sober train now because now we're in our 50s. And fuck, if you're not <laughs> on the sober train now at this point, you're going to end up dead. Yeah, not making it to your 60s. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way uh, the caffeine machine kind of came about. <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks for the question, uh, Craig, and definitely appreciate that. Make sure you keep us posted on that new Heathen record, will you? You know, it's kind of funny when you think about how all of that stuff was going on and now you guys are all kind of health nuts. For me, you know what's fucking funny? Think about this, Mike. I had, uh, I had, you know, you talk about health and this and that. And like about six, Dark Angel got together six years ago, like 2014, I had just turned 50 years old, man, and I went to get my colon checked 
for the first time. You know, the Kohler. I don't know if you have one of those. <laughs> Why'd you got to bring that up, man? Yes. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, colon cancer was in my family history. Yeah. So I was basically dreading that. And I had never had a surgical procedure at that point. I'd never been under anesthesia. Had my colon checked out. And when I was under the anesthesia, whatever, they came back and they said, your colon is fine. But we're looking at your EKG, your heart rhythm thing. Yeah. And the guy goes, you need to get this looked at. I was like, uh-oh, that doesn't sound too fun. Okay. You better go see your general doctor about your heart rhythm. And I was like, hmm. Okay, this doesn't sound very fun. Panic is like setting in. Go see my general doctor. He looks at the, he's doing all the tests, my general doctor. And and he's like, hmm, well, I want to send you to a, a cardio specialist. You need to go see a heart specialist, Eric, because I don't feel competent in what I'm seeing to, to judge what I'm seeing. So I go see a fucking cardiologist, a heart guy, and he does all the tests on my heart. And this was 2014, right? He does all the tests on my heart, and they do all the tests, and then they sit in the fucking room like you do at a doctor's office. And then the guy comes in, and he goes, well, Eric, you have dilated cardiomyopathy. And I'm like, hmm. That doesn't sound very fun. And he's like, well, he's like, your heart is enlarged and it's not pumping very well. Your heart should be pumping, a normal heart pumping, oddly as this may sound, but a normal heart pumping is only pumping out 40%. That's normal for a healthy heart pumps out 40%. That's what the guy told me. I couldn't have these things messed up, but this is what he told me. Normal heart pumps out 40%. Your heart is pumping out about 25%. And it's enlarged. So your life curve, average life curve, because you're in your 50s, you can see this because this is what the guy fucking tells me, dude. It's like average life curve goes about like this. 50, you're in your he goes, your life curve kind of goes like this. <laughs> Nosedive. Yeah. That's <laughs> what you guys can't see. He basically did a nosedive with his hand. So my colon checked out okay, and now this guy tells me that you've got a problem with your heart. And I was just like fucking crushed, man. You know? And he and he tells me, he's like, well, so I'm like, well, why is he's like, I and I just told him, I feel fine. You know, I feel, I have, and the, there are symptoms that happen when you have this condition in your, you basically can faint, you get dizzy. If your heart's not pumping well, that's the kind of shit that happens. I didn't display any of those symptoms. So he said, well, best case we could do, Eric, we're going to get you started on this medication, man. And, uh, you fly yourself on the straight and straight and narrow, so to speak. And hopefully we can turn this around for you. Yeah. Cause you're young enough. And the great fucking news is it turned around. Dude. Now. 
Not dead my yet. <laughs> and the fucking heart condition has gone away. Nice. But like, but that's the fucking fantastic thing. And the really scary thing that I had heard about is, you know what happened to Vinnie Paul? He had dilated cardiomyopathy. He had the exact same fucking thing that I had. Holy fuck, man. And there's other guys, you know, that it's like, it's a common, con- that's the thing about it. It's a common condition. And when the guy said that my heart was enlarged, it was enlarged by one centimeter. And if you know how big one centimeter is, it's a little, it's like three eighths of an inch. Yeah. It's fucking small. But I guess when you're talking about a heart, it's big. But so fortunately for me, man, all those things have turned around and I don't know what contributed to me getting that condition. Um, could have been from drug use. Could have not been from drug use. It's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> could now, have been from Vivarin. <laughs> it could have been from taking that. Um, you know, also a lot of time, you know, with asthma medication, asthma medications are stimulants. And I've had asthma. I've been taking that shit my whole fucking life, you know, as you probably have too. So what, if that's what gave me the condition, I don't know. But the beautiful thing about it is it's turned around and, and um, I, I think it's kind of like a lesson learned about pounding your body with those stimulants. I mean, it's like, I don't know what, and lots of people you get, you get heart attacks. You have the Kevin Dubrow's, you know, you got these guys that die from heart attacks and Paul Bailoff, I think, had some kind of stroke aneurysm and yeah. shit. And, and I don't really know if that's what happened to those guys, but it's probably pretty suspect that um, lifestyle may have played a factor. Well put. If nothing else, um, unfortunately, especially as we get older. That shit catches up with you, man, and you don't think about it when you're doing it in your 20s, but fuck, it catches up with you. And that's why, you know, it's like, God, now you just got to think, worry about being healthy and riding your bike and doing miles on your bike. And like, so you can do a good show. And that's basically where my head's at now, just so you can play a good fucking gig and still be on top of it at the end of the show, play an hour and a half set and deliver, deliver a good gig so you blow kids minds and crap like that it's good to have goals brother <laughs> that's the way i think about it man nice you know? for sure so i'm sorry yeah we really digress but yeah you got any more questions or whatever uh i've got uh, i've got two more here for you uh from steve falwell have you ever heard a band do a cover of a dark angel song yeah i have um there was a, a band in Europe that toured with us. I can't quite remember what their name was at this particular time, but they did Black Prophecies. I know Vader did Merciless Death. With the falsetto? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He, no, he didn't. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Vader did not do that. And that was quite old, actually, for them. But, yeah, they did do that. And I think there are probably others. I can't. I wish I could remember the name of the guys that did the Black Prophecies. They were... Uh, like a death metal-ish band that toured on our very last tour that we did. But I sure can't remember their name at this point. But yeah, so there have been a couple. You know, and it's funny you mentioned covers. I could digress a little bit. Um, you know, Bob Kulik just passed yeah, away. Yeah, from Kiss. 
Well, the guy who did the Kiss stuff, but actually he had done, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but if you're not, you'll hear about it, but he had actually done a bunch of like tribute cover records. He had like his own record label and he would do like these tribute records. And the last thing that Dark Angel did, he had, I got approached, I was working with these guys and he, one of the guys had told me that because he had worked with Bob before, he said, yeah, man, there's this guy, Bob Kulik, and he's, he's compiling bands to do a Metallica tribute record. Like Metallica tribute, that sounds fucking stupid, really, but <laughs> whatever. That's what this guy was doing. Metallica tribute record. And he's like, yeah, he's great gathering artists and whatever. And, and Dark Angel wasn't even reformed at that time. The, like some of the bands that he, he liked, made these little uh, kind of little compilation groups. Like he got Chuck Billy and Scott Ian and whatever. And and I know Skolnick played on as some of the guys from Death Angel. But um, so we ended up doing Creeping Death. But what was odd about it was Motorhead did a song on this. And I think they did Motor Breath. <laughs> Motor Breath um, by Motorhead. That's funny. Yes. And the funny thing about that is, if you know your trivia, Metallica got a Grammy for that song. That was the only Grammy that Motorhead ever got. If I have my trivia right, correct me if I'm wrong, but Motorhead's only fucking Grammy was for a Metallica cover that came (laughs) out on this fucking Metallica cover thing. That we were on as well. That's crazy, dude. Isn't that funny? And, and, and uh, you guys did a cover of uh, the Immigrant Song. Which we did do a cover of the Immigrant you, you, Song. You yeah. take a song that was already like a super fast song and you uh, L.A. caffeine machine it up and then you cut the time in half. <laughs> right? <laughs> what a great you know, cover that was. That was kind of a funny thing how that one worked out. We had kind of wanted to do a cover and uh, as I remember... We might have done that one sooner, but as I recall, Don couldn't really sing it right. And then we got Ron in the band and Ron sang it good. And yeah. so we did it. And I, th- I think at that point, it was a matter of everybody was trying to do a cover to get more accessibility to the masses was the whole thing that everybody was kind of trying to jump on. Um, everybody was kind of doing that at that point. And that was just kind of recommended, hey, do a cover, maybe get some airplay on KNAC or something, you know, at that point. But that was where we went with that one. So (laughs) that's a backstory on that. There you go. I'll digress on that. But yeah, that was was the thing with Bob Kulik and he did that. And I I wanted to throw that in because he just passed away. Yeah. 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 It was kind of weird working with him. He wasn't the nicest cat with me. But he was nice to the other guys. I mean, whatever. Hey, but, sometimes you can't click with everybody. You know, at the end of the day, if the job is done and everything's good, then you fucking water under the bridge, right? Pretty much. I, I was really optimistic about working with him because he was a guitar player and he did shit with Kiss, and I was a huge Kiss guy. Yeah. And um, so I was really ecstatic to be to to do something with him. And. Um, because at, before you worked with him, you didn't really know that 
Motorhead was going to be on it or whatever. It was just like, oh, Dark Angel, hey, do you want to fucking do this cover? Pay you a thousand bucks or something. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll do it, I mean, whatever. And so we just went in there and fucking did it. And, you know, like Gene did his fucking song. Gene did his part in one take. <laughs> his, he played one take. He played it one time. Yeah. That was it. One time. One take, one time. He had one version. So that was it. So Gene was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm done, man. Whatever. And like I said, Dark Angel wasn't even reformed at that point. Yeah. So it was like I played all the guitars on it. And Mike wasn't in the loop. And, you know, Ron played on it. And and honestly, I, for whatever reason, man, Bob didn't seem to like me too much, I don't think. And we just didn't really... <laughs> And he was kind of, he was kind of, we just didn't seem to get on that well. Yeah. And it, and it kind of made for an unpleasant guitar tracking experience for me, but whatever, man. And it was, it was done, it was done, it's done. And it's, it's unfortunate that he passed away. And uh, it is what it is. Motorhead got their one Grammy from doing a Metallica <laughs> cover. And it was kind of funny as if you'd see that record in the store, it would say like Grammy fucking record. And, yeah. Have all the Grammy uh, tags on it. Oh well, yeah. That's what it's all about. You know, uh, it is a Grammy, business, right? It was, it wasn't nominated. It was Grammy award winning. Yeah. That's record. Awesome. Yeah. It was kind of fun. It's kind of some trivia there and it still gets, it actually gets some airplay on serious radio occasionally with uh, Jose Mangan. Nice. Who is a, big fan of the band and uh he's our coolest motherfucker that guy so i love that guy so yeah sweet yeah well cool uh hey steve falwell thanks for uh, asking about the the dark angel cover there all right uh last uh question from listener from joe clark when was the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio when we did the stuff with knac um yeah, KNAC was the big uh, Long Beach metal radio thing in the L.A. area. You know, you're probably familiar with KNAC, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so that was the big thing. And they had, uh, unfortunately, KNAC, as much as they uh, talked about themselves as being a cutting-edge fucking rock radio station, they were still... A uh, playlist governed bunch of uh, talking disc jockeys that were playing only what they were told to do. Yeah, wh whatever the program manager said was what they had to do. Yes. So even though they talked an incredible game of being this cutting edge rock station, and I learned this the fucking hard way by, uh, and it seemed really odd to me. So that was about that was the first time I got. We had done. Um, KNAC had a hardcore metal hour at like 12 o'clock or something for an hour. They had uh, their, I don't know if it was manic metal or whatever the fuck it was, but their hardcore hour and they would play the fucking hardcore bands and that's where they would play Dark Angel. Yeah. It was on that little one hour snippet. They'd play a thing. And um, I remember Gene and I had gone on there and, um, we did, we were special guests, you know, we were hyping a show that we were doing at Fenders or whatever. And, um, so we went down and we did an interview 
on KNAC. And uh, that was kind of big shit, you know, at that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no, I mean, it was fucking really cool. Cause yeah. I was like a big station. And I know I remembered it was really funny to me because uh, here we got played on this hardcore hour. And I remember calling up a DJ because you could call in and do a request, right? So I called in and uh, the station was small enough. I remember I actually talked to the fucking DJ to do a request. And I was like, hey, plays Dark Angel. And this chick was like, okay, you want to hear Dark Angel? All right. Let's play. And she writes this thing down. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to fucking play Dark Angel, right? And this and this chick gets on the this chick comes on the fucking radio. She's like, yeah, this is for a song for Eric and Eric and Huntington Beach. He wants to hear something really hardcore. So let's play his hardcore song. And she plays a Metallica song. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck just happened here? What? Bait and why switch. The, why the <laughs> fuck did you agree with me? Say you're going to play it. Say, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, I'll play Dark Angel. Yeah, write down your song. And then just fucking outright just lie to me and play something else. And um, I think I called her back and said, what the fuck? And she was just like, oh, well, you know, Metallica is more popular. So, you know, but that's the way shit went. And I remember talking to one of the DJs one time at a club and he just fucking told me the truth. You know, it's like, oh, dude, we just it's all playlists. It's all, it's all playlists and fucking, uh, you know, corporate shit. You know, that's how you get played. You know, that's how a brand new band gets played when they get signed to Atlantic because Atlantic fucking pulls the strings. And that's how your fucking brand new band gets crammed down your fucking throat. And that's how it happens. And that's, that's what record labels are all about. They have the, the ins with the radio stations. And that's why... That's what record labels and how that whole pay-to-play kind of thing really happened with radio stations. And, and it kind of still happens to this day, you know. But unfortunately, with Sirius Radio, uh, we get played on Sirius Satellite Radio, and it's pretty fucking amazing because they still have the playlists, and they kind of still do that kind of shit. But fortunately, like Jose Mangan is a big fan of the band, and and it's pretty fucking amazing if you guys are listening to Sirius Satellite Radio. I mean, we've gotten airplay with about half a dozen different songs. Yeah, or even more. And it's really fucking awesome to me that that happens because, you know. Yeah, that's killer. You know, wait for those 35-cent uh, royalty checks to come through. Yeah, right? For sure. <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> I love, I, I love, you know, back in the day, you, you'd think like, oh my God, there's no possible way that a metal band would ever get played on the fucking radio. And then all of a sudden now you have, you know, satellite radio dedicated to it, podcast dedicated to it. You know, they get all kinds of, you know, not quite, I'm not going to say mainstream play that a lot of radio does, but you know, you can turn on KISW or, you know, whatever's up and, you, and once in a while you hear, you know, an, a really nice fucking metal song or some good thrash or occasionally even like a lot of the death metal crossover bands you find getting them uh, some airplay now. So it's happening. It's there. It's not as prevalent, obviously, but, uh, you know, hey, t- times are a changing for sure. Well, hey, uh, Coke, Coke Finlay from uh, the band Virus out of the UK. Apparently he knows Jim. Uh, he says, hey, ask, ask Eric to tell Jim Coke says hey. So uh, there okay, you go, Coke. Yeah. 
I'm we'll sure, do that. Man. Sure, he'll relay that message as soon as we get off the off the thing. Yeah, <laughs> man. Jim, Jim, Jim knows a lot of people, man. It's, so yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, brother, you have given me an insane amount of your time, uh, far above and beyond what I was hoping for. So thank oh, you right, so man. much for hanging out with me today. Is there anything oh, cool. else that you want to plug, uh, bring up before I let you get back to your afternoon? No, man. I mean, I'm all good. I hope it was entertaining. You know, I guess I could be kind of gabby. So. Oh, no, it's great, man. Uh, we love the conversations and the fact that you're willing to go down the rabbit holes on the history and answer a lot of those questions is super cool. So. Right on, man. I look forward to being able to get back out again. That's for damn sure. And uh, hopefully that's soon because we had, you know, it's just to digress a little bit, man. Boy, we started off last year with the Australian tour and then we did the the big gig in uh, Mexico. So it just really started off in the best way possible. And then, you know, things kind of got shut down. So Hopefully we'll get back to it. Well, of course, open invitation. Anytime you guys want to come on, if you got new shit you want to plug or, you know, something you want to throw out there to the world, you know, count on a misery point to, to support you a hundred percent. Where can people find you and follow you or the band on social media? How do they, how do they track you guys down? Um, well, it's dark angel official on, uh, Facebook and, um, and you can see my, uh, you know, Eric Meyer on Facebook, you can find me, you know, I'm on there and you can feel free to reach out from me to me there. I, I have an Instagram account as well. I really don't pay that much attention to that one for some reason. I'm cause I'm fairly new to that social media platform shit. It's only been about, so yeah, so that's where I'm at. Um, see me on Facebook, shoot me a message. If you like, that'd be great. Great to keep in touch with people and dark angel official on, uh, Facebook as well. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, Eric Meyer, Dark Angel, thank you so much, brother. Uh, thank you, man. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Well, I don't know how else to describe that other than absolutely huge piles of awesomeness. Thanks to all of you who gave up large chunks of your life to hang out with us for those two epic episodes. Honestly, there was so much more that we didn't even get to, so who knows? Maybe there's another episode in the future. Never say never, right, Eric? So, please, follow Eric and Dark Angel on all of their social media pages, and do the same for me here at Misery Point Radio. I always appreciate the support. So with that, I'll leave you with one more piece of thrash history. Here is the title track from their last album in 1991, Time Does Not Heal. Time Does Not Heal. 